If you have uh, Bibles handy, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, or a digital device, whatever um, is your preference, if you'd make your way to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 14 uh, is where we're going to be today for just a few minutes. Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, page 829 is where, you will, uh, where you'll find that. Uh, in this season of Advent, and you've been with us, you, you've heard us talking about this a lot. In the season of Advent, we anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. And as we do that, we're looking back to his first coming, the first Advent, when Jesus took on human flesh and dwelt among us, where he was sent by God into this world to rescue men and women from sin, from darkness. And as we look back and see how Jesus came and dwelt among us during the first advent, we're also then renewed in our anticipation for his second coming. Before the first advent, amid this delay of a promised Messiah, God's people watched and waited. They watched and waited for the day that God would finally fulfill his promises that he'd made for so many years. And likewise, amid the delay of Christ's second coming, Christ's return, we are people who watch and who wait. But we run into some really hard questions, some really important questions as we do that. Questions like, how long? How long are we supposed to watch and wait? And are we watching for the right things? Are there certain indicators or signs that tell us that we're actually on the right track and that the second advent is, is imminent? Maybe a question like this, will it get better or will it get worse? And centuries ago, Jesus' disciples asked questions just like these. We're looking at an account from that today in Matthew's gospel. So if you can follow along with me uh, as I read Matthew 24, verses 3 through 14. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming of the close of the age? And of the close of the age. And Jesus, said, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. In the Psalms of David, in the words of the prophets, in the dream of Joseph, your promise is spoken, eternal God. And it takes flesh at last in the womb of the virgin. May Emmanuel find welcome in our hearts, take flesh in our lives, and be for all peoples the welcome advent of redemption and grace. We ask this through him whose coming is certain, whose day draws near, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns, who lives and reigns with you forever. We pray this in his name. Amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So begins the classic Charles Dickens work, A Tale of Two Cities, and it continues. It was the age of wisdom. 
It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Dickens, of course, is writing about Paris and London in the era of the French Revolution. But there are some parallels to what Jesus says in the text that we just read. The signs of the end of the age is that it's going to get really bad. And at the very same time, it's going to get really good. And we might want to, as we read that, as we think about this whole idea of it doesn't get better or worse, we might want to dismiss this as perception or personality. So some of us are naturally more optimistic. We see the glass as half full. Some of us are more naturally pessimistic. We see the glass as half empty. We might also want to attribute this to circumstances. I know I resonate with this. Maybe it resonates with you as well. Some days life is so hard we despair of everything and we might say something like, this is the worst of times. And other days things might be going so well we might be happy that we might be tempted to say, this is the best of times. But beyond perception, beyond personality, beyond circumstances, Jesus is saying here, no, actually, before I come again, things will truly get much, much worse and they will truly get much, much better. And so the answer to this question of the title of the sermon, will things get better or worse, the answer to that question is yes. Yes, it will get better, and yes, it will get worse. And so we'll spend just these few minutes that we have together this morning thinking about that and and how we are to respond in light of that. So first, before Jesus comes, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Uh, In Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Jesus is talking really about two events at the same time. So he talks about the temple a little bit in verses 1 and 2 and then picks that up again in verse 15. He's speaking about something that's in the more uh, near future. And a lot of fulfillment happens to Jesus' words in the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, which happens in AD 70. But as we saw last week, the second half of this chapter and into Matthew 25 is clearly about a more distant future event, the day of the Lord. And so Jesus weaves in and out of these two events and talks about them almost like it's one thing. Uh, Scholars sometimes call this prophetic foreshortening. And the best image that maybe helps us get our mind around that a little bit is if we were to stand away from a mountain range quite a ways and we were to see two peaks in the distance, from our vantage point, it might look like those peaks are like right next to each other. There's one and then there's one right behind it. But if we were actually able to get there and, and see that mountain range from up close, we'd see there's actually a huge distance between those two mountain peaks. And so Jesus here is weaving in and out of talking about a nearer fulfillment in the, in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and an ultimate fulfillment on the day of the Lord. But this much is evident. Things are going to get much worse before the day of the Lord comes. And apart from that last sentence that we read in this text, that's really the only impression that we would have from what Jesus says here. Most of what Jesus says to his disciples in these words are about how bad it's going to be. So he says a few things. He says there's going to be deceivers and large-scale apostasy. So many will come claiming to be sent by Jesus, maybe even claiming to be Jesus himself. And this has happened many times over the history of the church. According to a first-century historian named Josephus, this happened at least three or four times just in the area when these books were being written. It's happened countless times in the century since, Wikipedia is just a great shorthand reference to see a list. They catalog a list of people who have claimed to be the Messiah or have predicted the end of the world. It's a, long, uh, it's a long list. Jesus also says that 
Some, well, he says that some will, will trade the genuine for the counterfeit. Many will fall away. And that even for those who don't fall away and, and embrace the counterfeit, lawlessness will increase and love will grow cold. So people will increasingly diminish or reject the law of God, the ways of God, and apathy and indifference toward the things of God will increase. Jesus says per, uh, political conflict and natural disasters will happen. So there will be wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Beyond the political conf- uh, conflicts that humanity is creating and stirring up, there are also these uncontrollable catastrophes like earthquakes and famines. There's going to be a lot of persecution, Jesus says, of his followers. Christians are going to be hated. They're going to be physically harmed. They're going to be killed. The, the world will become an incredibly hostile place for the people of God. But it's interesting to think about this through the lens of history. That is actually what characterizes the vast majority of the Christian experience in the history of the world. And you and I often miss that as 21st century Christians in America. Because for what most of us who have been born in this country were born into is one of the most amicable, comfortable, Christian-friendly environments that the world has ever known. And there's a lot of blessing to that. In the midst of all of the blessings for that, it's also, I think, done great damage to the integrity of the gospel in certain cases, great damage to the integrity of the church in certain cases. But when we hear persecution or we think about even our own place in history, sometimes American Christians sound like the return of Christ is imminent because a person wished you happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, right? And we're like, oh no, persecution, it's getting, it's getting worse, the end is near. The persecution Jesus talks about, which is which is hostility, imprisonment, beatings, and death, that's actually been what most Christians have experienced in most places for 2,000 years. He says also there's going to be relational strife. So Christians will betray one another. They'll hate one another. This hatred is not just going to come from the outside of the community of God's people. It's going to come from within as well. So Jesus clearly says it's going to get worse, but at the same time he says it's going to get better. Verse 14 seemingly comes out of nowhere in this text. In the midst of all this talk of decay and suffering, Jesus says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So at the very same time that people are being deceived, turning away from their faith, when Christians are being hated by the world both from outside and from within, and where political conflict and natural disasters are creating all kinds of pain and suffering, What Jesus says here is that the good news of God's saving work is advancing to the ends of the earth. But it's not just the message of the gospel itself. It is, of course, founded in the message of the gospel. But beyond that, it's the redemptive work of God through his people who have believed that message and who live in light of it. So when the gospel comes in power to a people, it utterly transforms them. And it sends them out as agents of transformation to the world around them. The church is never meant to merely be a people who gather for worship services and gather for Christian education or gather for programs. And I just would implore you, don't ever be content with a small view of the church like that. The church is meant to be the transformed people of God who in response to what Jesus has done bring transformation to every facet of culture and life around them in light of that. The church is meant to be people who are reconciled reconcilers, redeemed redeemers, justified workers of justice. 
Though this place is not our eternal home as God's people, we are, very much like the Israelites were, sent into exile and tasked with seeking the flourishing of this world until either our lives come to an end or Jesus comes back. And because of God's work through God's people, some of the prophecies that we read in Scripture envision days of unbelievable joy and unbelievable peace. Days when through this widespread knowledge of God, this advancing message of the kingdom of God, things are going to get drastically better in the world. So the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 11, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." The prophet Habakkuk says something almost identical to that. The author of Hebrews quotes the prophet Jeremiah about the new covenant when there won't even be a need for us to teach one another the ways of God because we all will just know it in our heart. So things get better. How are we to resolve this? How are we to think and act when sometimes it sounds like things are getting so much worse and at other times it sounds like things are going to get so much better before Jesus comes? Well, the first thing I would say to us, just practically, don't resolve it. Don't resolve this. Author, scholar named D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, throughout the history of the Christian church, various theories have been advanced as to whether the world is getting better or worse. In the Puritan period, the majority of Puritan pastors believed that eventually a time of millennial splendor, splendor and glory before the Lord's final return would be introduced by the preaching of the gospel. It did not work out that way. By contrast, at other times in the history of the church, Christians have fastened their attention on moral and cultural declension. Everything appears to be decaying. We are in one of those periods today in the Western world, though not in every part of the world. The voices of gloom tell us that culture is declining, moral standards are eroding, integrity is disappearing, and the world is going to get worse. And Carson then continues, Our visions are often constrained by our narrow place in history. We do not take the broader view. What will happen in the 21st century? I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I will tell you what will happen if Jesus does not come back first. The world will continue to get both better and worse. The gospel will advance and so will opposition. There will be outbreaks of revival and blessing. There will be a great ingathering along with great persecution, perhaps the greatest persecution we have ever faced. So here's the thing. Each of us are inclined to be selective in our hearing and selective in our seeing. And maybe that's because of personality, or maybe that's because of circumstances, but because of that, or because of something, we will want to resolve this and either fixate on the decay or fixate on the flourishing. And instead, what we must do is to keep our eyes and keep our ears open for evidences of both. So, for example, over the past 150 years, there has been more, Christian, more persecution and Christian martyrs than there were in the previous 1,800 years combined. And in those same 150 years, the gospel has spread to more languages, to more people groups, and there have been more conversions to Christ than, at any point, than, than in the previous 1,800 years combined. So you see how it's getting better on the one hand and it's getting worse on the other at the very same time? When we try to resolve this, we become reductionistic. And in our reductionism, we become either naively optimistic and we overestimate our ability about how much we're going to be able to accomplish, or we underestimate our opportunity and we become cynically pessimistic. 
So, at f- so first, I would say don't resolve this. Don't resolve it. Second, I would say don't overestimate your ability. Don't overestimate your ability. If your selective hearing, if this is your personality or kind of just your bent, if your selective hearing is tuned to the flourishing, then the danger is that you will overestimate how much you or the people of God will be able to accomplish in this life. In 1989, a political economist named Francis Fukuyama wrote a book in which he concluded that with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the major world conflicts were over. Not quite. Okay, not quite. Uh, his theory was that now with, that, with the end of that conflict, liberal democracies and free market capitalism would now usher in this pinnacle of humanity's sociocultural evolution. Okay, what, what he's suggesting there, what that's rooted in, that's an enlightenment-driven, uh, humanistic, utopian vision of the future. And Christians, what Christians sometimes do is try to borrow from that and just sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus on top. Right? And we might be especially likely to do that and likely to overestimate like this during this Christmas season where certain songs are filled with lyrics about human flourishing and peace on earth. So in 1967, Stevie Wonder wrote a song called Someday at Christmas. Someday at Christmas, there'll be no tears. All men are equal and no men have fears. Someday at Christmas, man will not fail. Hate will be gone and love will prevail. Someday, a new world we can start with hope in every heart. The longings and desires of that song are so right. I mean, they are so on point. But the timing is off. The timing is off. Stevie has the wrong advent in view as he writes that song. Christmas opens the, this first advent of Christ. That opens the door for us to experience some of this during our lifetime. But sin and evil are real and powerful, and the only effectual remedy is Jesus Christ making all things new. So yes, someday, but it's not going to be through a new world that we can start by ourselves. It's not going to be through as some of the songs would kind of suggest, a magical Christmas spirit by which humanity finally comes around. The someday for which Stevie longs and I long and I hope you long is the day. It's the day when the day of the Lord went for which we were watching and, and waiting as God's people. So let us not overestimate ourselves. You and I cannot fully or completely stop the decay of this world. And I would just implore you in this, be skeptical if you, if you think you have stumbled into the book, the resource, the church, the ministry, the person who is going to usher in this unprecedented era, era of peace and prosperity. We cannot accomplish peace on earth without the return of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, it is never us who transforms the world. It is the gospel that transforms the world. And as this gospel message advances, what it proclaims is that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. Now, at the very same time, don't underestimate your opportunity. Don't overestimate your ability. Don't underestimate your opportunity. And I think this is probably, perhaps, what more of us in the room need to hear this morning. If your selective hearing is more tuned to the decay, then you will almost certainly, as a byproduct of that, underestimate your opportunity in this world. Because what we read in Scripture is that before the second advent of Jesus Christ, things will get better. Sometimes in spite of uh, all of the suffering, evil, and hardship, and sometimes specifically because of that, there will be opportunities to contribute to the flourishing of this world. And you and I can, by the grace of God, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can push back what is dark in the world. 
you and I can meaningfully contribute to the advancement of God's kingdom in both word and deed until he comes. In 2007, uh, the Atlantic magazine celebrated its 150th anniversary. It asked a number of people to contribute uh, short essays on this theme of the American idea. One of those essays came from a man named Sam Harris. Uh, Sam Harris is a relatively well-known and published atheist. He wrote an essay that was entitled, A God-Drunk Society. A God-Drunk Society. And in it, he laments, quote, Many Americans apparently believe that Jesus will return someday and orchestrate the end of the world with his magic powers. This hankering for a denominational spiritual oblivion is not a good bet, much less a useful idea. And yet, abject superstition of this kind engorges our nation from sea to shining sea. It need not be so. We could lead the world in wise environmental policies, scientific education, medical research, aid to developing countries, and every other project relevant to the durable welfare of humanity. What Sam Harris is is arguing for in that essay, he's saying, stop watching and waiting for the someday of Jesus' return and contribute something good today. It's essentially what he's saying to Americans. And that's a common perspective. It's a logical thought. Unless, unless the demonstrated love of God in his first coming and the hope of Christ's second coming is the only thing that can empower and sustain real good in the world. Unless the fact that Jesus will return someday and orchestrate the end of the world is actually the very reason why we pursue every project relevant to the durable welfare of humanity. You want to do some genuine good in the world? I'm glad. Me too. Don't minimize the return of Jesus Christ. Maximize it. Make it larger in your view. Work as those who know the outcome of this cosmic redemptive mission of God. Work with the kind of durability and diligence and passion that is only possible for those who know they ultimately cannot fail because this is Jesus' work of making all things new. If Jesus' return diminishes our incentive for pouring ourselves out for the good of humanity, then we are missing the point of Jesus' return. So don't, I would encourage you, don't give yourself partially to the coming of Christ so that you then engage with reservation or hesitation about the significance of your efforts. Instead, give yourselves so fully to the coming of Christ that you wholeheartedly invest yourself in this world that he loves. In this church, you will never see a chart, billboard, banner, or otherwise predicting the day, year, or generation that Jesus will come back. You will, I hope and pray, be part of even louder proclamations of the imminence of Jesus' return displayed all over this region and beyond that in the way that we pour ourselves out for the flourishing of this world. In the way that we speak about the beauty of what Christ has accomplished. In the way that we serve and sacrifice our time and our money and our comforts so that others might be loved and cared for in the way that we labor in productive vocations, imaging God and contributing as co-creators and cultivators of what he has made. So before the second advent, things will get worse and things will get better. Without overestimating our ability, without underestimating our opportunity, let's be people who lament and fight the decay. Let's be people who celebrate and advance the flourishing. 
may we endure to the end. And in the midst of things getting better and in the midst of things getting worse, may Jesus come and complete the reconciliation of the world to himself. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, your coming is our hope. It is not only what we look to in the distant future to give us hope. It is what we look to today to give us hope. It is what we look to today to empower us to live productive and good lives now. And I pray that you would, as you stir in us and and renew in us an urgency and an anticipation, thinking about your coming again, that we would not overestimate our ability, we would not be naively optimistic, that we would not discount sin and evil and how powerful they are, but that we would not underestimate our opportunity as well. And that precisely because you are coming again, we would work in this world with diligence and durability. This is a world that you love. This is a world that you came into to save and to rescue. And you have sent us as your people on that same mission. Strengthen our hands for that work and renew us in the work you have done and are doing in each of us as we now come to this table. And we pray this in your name. Amen.